started us off in uh, Ecclesiastes last week. It's great. Very disturbing picture of a fridge. <clears throat> this week I had a coworker of mine who will remain nameless say, so what are you teaching on this week? Ecclesiastes. Said, yeah, vanity. And they responded, well, I'm sure that's what happens when you marry 700 women. You end up thinking life is all vain. <clears throat> I thought that would get more of a laugh than it did. <laughs> uh, if there's one part of my life that helps me understand vanity, it's when I was a little child. And my dad... Um, to understand, my dad grew up farming, farming cotton, and so his dad required him to go work in the fields. And when I was little, my dad wanted to have a nice yard, which is drastically different than hoeing cotton, right? But he wanted me to go out and uh, pick weeds out of the yard. So we would go out into the yard, me, my dad, and my little sister, and he would say, Let's pick all the weeds in the front yard today. And I would start picking weeds. And then after a couple of seconds, I would look up and my sister was running back into the house. So now it's just me and dad outside picking weeds. And he would look over and just see like the top of the dandelions. It's like, no, 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 son, you got to actually get the root out in order to get rid of the weed. And then I would look up at our front yard and it was like a vast ocean of dandelions. And I'm like... I didn't realize at the time, but I was quoting Solomon, this is vanity. <laughs> I'm going to pick all these weeds, and tomorrow I'm, there's going to be more. Why aren't we doing this? Solomon is going to present us with several tragedies in life, and I'm going to show you four of those tragedies this morning. And then I'm going to offer you or fill you in on what he says is the solution to that. And then I'm going to try and help us unpack that solution. What is the solution to life being utterly vain? What are we doing here? So, four texts Solomon gives us, all talking about the labor that we give ourselves to. The first one is this, covetous labor. Ecclesiastes 4, 4 says, I saw that all labor and skill for work is done, is due to one person's jealousy of another. This too is futile and a pursuit of the wind. Turns out, you don't need social media in order to covet what other people have. This was happening decades upon decades ago, centuries ago, thousands of years ago. Solomon looks at the world and says, look at this. The only reason that you are giving yourself to all that work is because you've looked at someone else's life and said, I want that. Pretty strange, huh? 
when you think about it in the context of other people's lives. And yet, it happens all the time. It happened to me last night. Someone texted me and said, hey, I can't come to set up in the morning with a picture of them in Hawaii. So I guess you'll just need to look for who's back with a suntan next week to know who that is. <clears throat> in the moment, I'm thinking, man, I would rather be in Hawaii than at setup. This also happened last summer. The Chamber of Commerce in Homer uh, last summer had a truck sitting on the side of the road, and all you needed to do was go and buy one little ticket. And there was a phrase that was passed around the office. It says, you just need one ticket for the Lord to bless you. <laughs> I mean, that's true. But is that the only way he blesses us? It's through a truck. I mean, are you, are you, is your life going to be that much different with a suntan and a car payment? No. And I desperately want a truck, and I realize I can't. It's not going to change that much of life. I'll be able to put more in the back of a bed of a truck than I would a Honda, you know? <clears throat> Are you working towards something solely because you see someone else's life and think, man, if I could just had that, things would be good? covetous labor. It's the first example Solomon gives us. The second one is righteous labor. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 7 and 8. Again, I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toy, toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches. So that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This is also vanity and a miserable task. Someone's looking at the world and saying, you're working that hard because you believe that it's the right thing to do giving all of your effort because this is morally better than what I could be doing. So I'll deprive myself of the pleasure that I could have in order to grind every day in order to earn an income. When I graduated college, I had a quick job that I got fired from at a restaurant. I don't know why I told you that. Um, and then I started a career in insurance. I worked locally as an insurance adjuster for property insurance, um, coming to your house to tell you whether or not your insurance was going to cover the fire that you started in your kitchen or the roof that was leaking. And that was actually a pretty decent job. I enjoyed it. I did that for three years. And then I joined what's called the catastrophe team. The catastrophe team is the people who fly across the country to hurricane spots or tornadoes or hailstorms or major fires, and they swoop in like superheroes to your disaster and tell you whether or not the insurance company is going to come through when you really need it. It was also a pretty fun job. 
Well, what that required of me is that I would go somewhere for three weeks at a time, and then I would be home for five days, and then I would go somewhere else for three weeks. And that pattern continued for three and a half years. Somewhere towards the end of that three and a half years, I met a guy in Connecticut who was from Texas. We sat down in our hotel and had a meal together. And this guy in the middle of the meal says, hey, hold on, I need to call my family back home. So he calls his family and he's talking to his wife. And then he talks to his first kid and then his second kid and his third kid. And I started to put some things together. We earn a decent living here, more than I think I could ever make anywhere else. And I've been doing this because I think this is going to set me up to do something well in the future. And now I'm sitting face to face with this guy who has a family, wife, and young kids. And I say to myself, this, I've made a fatal flaw in my thinking. I'm not doing this because it's the right reason. I'm doing this because it's what I want to do. I actually just like money. <laughs> and I've just made it so that I, I can feel better about what I'm doing. It was in that moment that I started to count the cost of me traveling and earning that wage versus what I really wanted, which was a family. And I justified having that job and doing those things so that one day I might have a better family. But in the end, I was just lying to myself. That was one of those moments where I think God stepped in and gave me clarity about my future. I said, no, 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 I actually have something far better for you than that. Covetous labor, righteous labor. I work for what I think is better to my own detriment and to my own loneliness, giving myself to something that's not actually going to give back in the end. Third labor, greedy labor. Ecclesiastes 5, 13 through 17. This is my favorite way that this phrase is translated. The phrase meaningless. Solomon says, according to the Christian Standard Bible, there is a sickening tragedy I have seen under the sun. Wealth kept by its owner to his own harm. That wealth has lost in a bad venture. So when he fathered a son, he was empty-handed. As he came from his mother's womb, so he will go again, naked as he came. He will take nothing for his efforts that he can carry in his hands. This too is a sickening tragedy. Exactly as he comes, so he will go. What does the one gain who struggles for the win? What more? What is more? He eats in darkness all his days with much frustration sickness, and anger. Doing all this just so that I can have material possession, wealth. Do you know that the current statistics are 70% of lottery winners, 
spend every bit of what they won? Isn't that the point of the lottery? I'm going to play the lottery so that I can change my future, so that I might have enough to not worry about my financial status and have a good life. I told you before that my wife likes crime dramas, crime documentaries, and I I would claim to you that I'm an innocent bystander in the watching of those. We recently watched one about a guy who won the lottery in Florida, and he had a very rough upbringing. He lived in poverty his whole life, and then he won $30 million and took home 17. And you watch the videos of this guy talk about his life, he actually is far more miserable with all that money than when he wasn't, when he was poor. All of his friends basically became beggars and he gave his money away. The last time he was seen, he was saying, I'm just going to escape somewhere. Go away from all this. Leave everything behind. I've got enough money. I think I can make it happen. And then four months goes by and a murder investigation starts. He got all this money and then loses his life. We work for security labor after feeling like everything's going to be fine. If I just had this together, my life would, would, I wouldn't have troubles. That too is a lie. The last one, I might be stretching on this one a little bit, but it has its place. Unearned labor. Ecclesiastes 6, 1 through 2. Here is a tragedy I have observed under the sun, and it weighs heavily on humanity. God gives a person riches, wealth, and honor so that he lacks nothing of all he desires for himself. But God does not allow him to enjoy them. Instead, a stranger will enjoy them. This is futile and a sickening tragedy. It says that you have everything that you could ever enjoy in life. There is nothing that you cannot do. And yet the problem that exists is that there is a hole in your heart that money and things cannot fill. Why chase after them? You might look at that passage and go, man, that's, that's kind of jacked up that God would do that. I would pose to you that that is actually the goodness of God trying to capture the attention of someone chasing after something that will end in their death. Money, possessions, it can't satisfy my soul. It can't satisfy your soul. We spend so much of our time 
laboring after this future life that we want to have, we want to attain, we want to reach out and grasp for, and we think that if we do X, Y, and Z, it will lead to that good life that we want. And so we labor day after day. I'm going to keep going, keep working. Maybe I'll get there. Solomon's response is drastically different than that solution. This is what he says. I'll give you three texts. Ecclesiastes 3.22. I have seen that there is nothing better for a man than to enjoy his work because that is his lot. For who can bring him to see what will come after him? Who can bring him to see? What's going to come after your life here on earth? What will happen to the the house, the car, your family once you're gone? What's going to happen to your spirit once you're gone? What's going to happen to the earth in its entirety centuries from now? He's the only one that can give you a perspective to see what is true, what is real, what is permanent, what is eternity. To enjoy your lot. Solomon is saying here is trust God, live in the present, and enjoy the work that you've been given. Second passage, Ecclesiastes 5, 18 through 20. Here is what I have seen to be good and fitting to eat and drink. I like that one. And to find satisfaction in all the labor one does under the sun during the few days of life that God has given, for that is his lot. Furthermore, God has given riches and wealth to every man, and he is able to enjoy them, to accept his lot, and to receive, rejoice in his labor. This is a gift from God, for man seldom considers the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with the joy of his heart. Someone's saying, just, just slow down. Take it day by day. Every day that you have is a gift from him. And he has flooded you, the whole earth, all of creation, with riches that are unimaginable. This thing is going to pass by in the blink of an eye. Why spend all your time laboring, chasing, trying to make yourself something. Enjoy it. What he's saying here is life is short. Enjoy God's blessings and the lot that you've been given. Number three. Ecclesiastes 3, 12 and 14. 
I know that there is nothing better for them than to rejoice and do good while they live. And also that every man should eat and drink and find satisfaction in all his labor. This is the gift of God. I know that everything God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it or taken from it. What, do, what God does, God does it so that they should fear him. What you do in a day probably won't be here in 50 years. What you do in a lifetime probably won't be here in a thousand years. It definitely won't be. But what God is doing will be here for eternity. God is everlasting. And in the life that he's given us, we should come to a place of what he is doing, of fearing him, of acknowledging him as the greatest being, as the one that we should sit under, as the one that we should submit to. All of those things, those three scriptures point to us enjoying what God has given us. And two of the scriptures, Solomon says, enjoy your lot. What many of you hear when I say that is, if you're poor, just be poor. If you're rich, enjoy your riches. If you're short, enjoy being short, tall, fat, skinny, right? Just enjoy it all. It's, it doesn't, doesn't matter. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not, Solomon's not saying just grin and bear everything about life. You could also think about it in a different context. We live in a very individualistic culture. And so what you may think of as your lot needs to be a uh, specific contribution to this world, to this society. I need to be special in some way in order to have meaning. That too is not what Solomon means. Solomon did not live in an individualistic culture. What does Solomon mean by lot? I'll give you two categories for what a lot is. And they're both found in Genesis. The first lot is that you and all of humanity are representatives. You're a representative. No matter how you cut it, no matter how you think about yourself, you are called to represent something. Genesis 1, 26 says, 
Let us make them in our image. You are called to be an image bearer. Guess what? No matter how you are physically formed, no matter what your bank account says, no matter what kind of car you drive or house you live in, you are an image bearer of a creator who spoke you into existence. Isn't that wild? He forms Adam out of dust, breathes into his nostrils. Chapter 1. Chapter 2 of Genesis, Adam's standing there with the living God, and he uh, parades all of creation before Adam with a purpose. Let's find you a helper. As Adam names everything under the sun, God and Adam figure out that there is nothing else that will fit to be a helper for him. Do you understand what that means? It means that you are created drastically different than all of creation. You are meant to represent him on the face of this earth, to be seated above all other creation as made in his image. Then you come to the Ten Commandments. Some of you are scratching your head. First commandment, I am the Lord your God. Don't have any other gods before me. Second commandment, don't have any other images besides. Don't make any carved images. I'm the God. You don't have any need for that anymore. Third command, Genesis 20, or excuse me, Exodus 20, verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. And some of you are saying, what does cursing have to do with this? You could understand that passage that way. You could. Or you could look at the grander context of what's happening in Exodus chapter 20. This is a covenant between a nation and God. And a few chapters later, chapter 24, Israel's going to say, I do. I will follow your commands. I'm not suggesting for those who are smaller in nature that you should walk around saying OMG. There's other passages for that. This is about you being a representative of the king about you bearing the name of the one you are tied to. You remember your vows, those of you who are married? For better or worse, for richer or poorer, in sickness and in health, 
to love and to cherish from this day forward. Those of you who have made a covenant with him, you are supposed to be representatives of him, showcasing his glory to the world. That's number one, your representative. You are showing the world who he is and what he's like. How do you go about doing that? In three primary ways in Genesis, you reproduce, Genesis 1 is going to tell you to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. And I've told you before, have babies, right? That's the Genesis mandate, is to make more people so that the world would see his image. And then the New Testament is going to take that a step further and say, no, it's not just about creating children, it's about uh, leading people into a spiritual birth, being, being born again. But I want you to think about it in a, in a grander context, that God has placed you in his creation, and he's told you to fill the earth. Fill the earth with what? Fill the earth with his character. Fill the earth with images of him. You are literally to be multipliers of his essence in this place. Second part of your work is to rule. Fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion over all creation. See, the hierarchy is God, us, everything else. You're second in command. Isn't that crazy? Remember I was talking about weeds? You put that picture up, Emily? This is my dad this week. Do you know what he's doing? You could say he's killing weeds. I would tell you this man is enjoying life. With a propane tank and a burner He's trying to subdue his yard, to have dominion over it. And it's, it's not out of duty. It's because he enjoys doing it. I get to be here and have place here. This is my lot. This is what I've been given, and I can control it. Each of you are given that. What a treasure. What wealth, what riches that you have. Lastly, rest. God finishes his creation and rests on the seventh day. And his rest on the seventh day isn't for any other reason other than I'm the one. I'm the one who's sovereign over all of this. I made it and now I have nothing else to do but to sit back and enjoy it. And he calls you to do the exact same thing. That is your lot. It's a command to keep the Sabbath day, to rest in him, to look at him and say, you are sovereign over all of my life, over the whole world. There's nothing that isn't in your hands that I need to step out and labor for and control. So you get to partner with him in all of that to be a representative. And as a representative, we reproduce, 
We rule and we rest. How glorious is that? So here's my question. Is it enough? Is your lot enough to be an image bearer? Is it, is it enough to lay down the rest of your labor to stop chasing meaning in things that will ultimately not bring it in order to be his representative, in order to be his image bearer? Do you know what happens when we step into that? All of creation gets a glimpse of what is to come. of what good creation looks like. That's what we're being called to. What an incredible lot that is. No other piece of creation has that. so thankful that you have not left us to fend for ourselves. And I ask this that you would help us to hold a perspective that is true to your word, that is true to who you are calling us to be, your children, beloved church, your bride. God, that that calling would so mark our lives that it changes the way we see each other, the way we see the world, and would it allow us to partner with you might enjoy this short life that you've given us. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Can't really think of a better way for us to end this service than by taking communion together. So if you guys just have a seat, there's going to be a team of people bring communion to you. If you would just pass it along, grab one, and we'll take it together in just a second.
put Church on the Rock in a bind by saying this, but next time we will have real bread. I mean, not that this isn't something. That's not what really matters. The night of the Last Supper, before Jesus was crucified, he sat down with the twelve, trying to get them to understand what was about to happen. And at the same time, encouraging them to remember that moment with him. So he took a loaf of bread and he broke it and said, this is my body broken for you to take on your sins. So take it and remember. as we participate in communion we remember the Lord's death and what he gave for us and that he will come back Amen Everybody um, the prayer team is going to hang out for a few if you want to respond um, I often as I'm hearing the message asking the Lord, what's, what's my next step? What is it that you want to do in this moment? So I want to invite you guys to that, to be sensitive to the Lord and his invitation to you this morning. Um, so if you want prayer, the prayer team is going to be um, available over there. Um, tonight we have uh, house church. So connect with your house church uh, group leader. Um, kindergartners and up, if you guys got a paper and you filled it in, if you bring it to the table, Sarah Jane's going to be over there and she has uh, some rewards for you, which you got a little sample of up here earlier. And then um, I think that's it. We don't officially end at 1230. If you guys want to hang out, we're short just a few uh, usual setup and teardown folks. So if you want to help out around here and in the hallway, that would be great. Uh, God bless you guys as you go into your week.